uh, as we near the end of uh, this series in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 13, if you're uh, using one of the pew chair Bibles, you should find it on or near page uh, 758. Hosea chapter 13, if you would uh, give your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. You know, no God but me. And besides me, there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He or it destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son for at the time for the right time. He does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind The wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Uh, You inspired these words. You have kept them, held them uh, for us, preserved them uh, several, a couple thousand years uh, for us to have and to read and to know your revealed will. Uh, And we pray, we ask that you would be at work in them and through them, by them in our own hearts. Uh, grant us wisdom to know Christ, Uh, grant us understanding uh, and a desire to know you. Um, And we pray too that you would grant us hearts that 
react, that embrace, that reflect your word at work in us. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's common enough, I suppose, whenever there's some downfall, whenever there's some collapse of some kind, to kind of go back and ask the question, so what caused that? When exactly did things go wrong? Where exactly did, I don't know, did you know, the thing happen, the decision made, the failure, the whatever the case may be, what exactly caused the downfall of that group? I mean, I suppose at some level you could, you could start a, an argument in a good history class if you decided to throw out there the question, what exactly caused the downfall of the Roman Empire? And you might point to any number of possible scenarios, possible decisions, actions, things in the life of, of the Roman Empire that kind of brought its collapse. And you can kind of do the same thing with churches or denominations for that matter and kind of go, well, where did this church or where did this denomination sort of fall away? Where did liberalism sort of slide in? And what you realize is that anytime you ask those questions, there's never one point, right? There's never one inflection point. There's never one place where, oh, well, that right there caused the fall of the Roman Empire. The, the reality is you kind of go, well, this, but now I can also see where this is really a result of that that came before it, which really is a result of that that came before it. And ultimately you realize that it's a thousand decisions. It's a thousand points. It's a thousand places along the timeline where, where Rome or where the church or whatever, the denomination or whatever the case may be, um, began to fall, began to wander, began to stray. It rarely comes down to one moment, one point in time. And the reality is that's kind of where Israel is. That's kind of the, the nation to which Hosea now brings his prophecy. It's a, a nation on the verge of destruction. Assyria is about to come in and conquer them and, and essentially destroy them. And you kind of want to read Hosea, you kind of want to read First and Second Kings and go, okay, so where exactly was the problem? And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but over and over again, Hosea goes back to the wilderness. To the time between Egypt and the promised land. And he's basically saying there's really not one place. There's a thousand places. That, that really this destruction, this defeat... The fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, isn't something that started yesterday, but it has started over a thousand yesterdays. It's an accumulation of the ages of rebellion against God and judgment is finally coming. Of course, you and I think we're safe, right? I mean, that would never happen to us. I mean, that can't possibly happen to Grace Covenant or that can't possibly happen to me as a person. And then every point, every moment where we sort of say, well, I know God says this, but just this once, I'm going to do something else instead. 
how much easier it is next time. Well, you add up a bunch of next times and suddenly you're somewhere else. Suddenly you're in a completely different place. What happens after dozens of next times? That's exactly where we find ourselves in chapter 13. And so this passage really serves as, as both a, uh, an explanation and a warning to us. First, I want you to see the substance of sin. Uh, the, the chapter begins, verses 1 and 2, with a, a reminder with really what's at the heart of our cosmic treason. Right? We're, we're guilty of cosmic treason. We're guilty of looking at the, the king and ruler and creator of all of heaven and earth and shaking our fists at him and saying, no, I'm not interested. I'm going to do things my own way. And really this chapter kind of reminds us of this. And again, notice he kind of pulls up the image of the golden calf from the wilderness wanderings. Now, it just so happens that here it's silver. It just so happens that there's, you know, an idol that Baal is involved. But we've already been reminded a number of times in this book that that was true even between Egypt and Canaan, even between Egypt and the promised land. And so he, he reminds them, he points out, look, this is your sin, this is your guilt here, but it's actually rooted in stuff you've done through the ages. If root, it's rooted in stuff that you've been doing, quite honestly, for centuries. And even before the promised land, Israel had a calf. Even before entering Canaan, Israel had an idol. They made for themselves an idol and said, this is the God who has delivered us. And so there's this picture here, Israel's guilty of worshiping these metal images. You know, there's a time when Ephraim, and the reason you sometimes will read Ephraim in the Old Testament in place of a of Israel is because Ephraim was the key tribe, right? That son of Joseph that was the largest that was the the sort of significant representative, the strong tribe in the north. There was a time when Ephraim spoke, I guess sort of like E.F. Hutton. Ephraim spoke and the people trembled. Ephraim spoke and the people listened. The people paid attention. And yet, she's guilty. He is guilty. Why? Well, through Baal. He's been worshiping idols. He's been worshiping Baal. And he's given himself to the worship of these metal images, which, by the way, um, I don't know if you've sort of thought about this or not. Metal images don't just happen on their own, right? They don't self create. That means you kind of had to decide in advance, I'm going to worship. This thing that doesn't yet exist, and so therefore I'm going to have to go make it. And and you remember, was it Isaiah's jab, right? You made the idol, therefore you, by definition, are greater than it is. Why are you worshiping it? You made it. You are its creator. You should be worshiping yourself. That's kind of the image. It takes... It takes 
decision and intention on the part of the people to create these idols. And in fact, they kiss calves. That kiss, a sign of dedication, of commitment, of submission, right? The greater doesn't walk up and kiss the cheek of the lesser. The lesser kisses the cheek of the greater. Kisses the ring of the greater. To say, I'm committing and I'm submitting to you. And so when you walk up and kiss calves, you are bowing yourself, dedicating yourself to these idols. Do you hear the the substance of sin? Do you hear what's going on in Israel? I I hope that you already are thinking, hang on a second. This sounds an awful lot like the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, I mean, except for this one. Right, God? I mean, okay, God, I get it. But I'm going to make this silver bail, the silver calf, this silver image. I'm going to make this thing out of gold or wood or whatever. And you're okay with that one though, right? I mean, of course not. Of course he's not. And so God gave the Ten Commandments to a redeemed people. He gave the Ten Commandments to people who were already... He didn't give the Ten Commandments in Egypt and say, now if you will do these things, then I will bring you out. Before you even read the first commandment in Exodus 20, God says, I am the Lord your God who has already brought you out of bondage. Now, therefore, have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments were given to redeemed people, to delivered people. And yet in their sin and in their rebellion and cosmic treason, they're guilty of setting aside the law of God. In other words, you might say the substance of sin is lawlessness. Or to put it sort of in the context of these first two verses, it's um, we sin when we fail to worship and serve God correctly. When we fail to worship and serve God in a manner that he has commanded us. And we fail to worship and serve God exclusively. The substance of sin is lawlessness. But the reality is, there's more going on in this chapter than simply ignoring God's law. Because notice what happens in verses 4 to 6. Israel got fat and happy. Israel got settled, content, stomachs full, right? They grazed. They became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. They got fat and happy. And so what did they do? They forgot the one who delivered them. They forgot God. They decided, look at me. We saw this last week. They pointed at themselves and said, look at all these great things that we've done. Look at this deliverance that I've provided for myself. Look at all this great food that I have made. Look at this this comfort and this comfortable life that I have 
created for myself. Or perhaps they honored Baal for that which the one true God of heaven and earth had done for them. Notice he says in verse 4, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. You don't know any other God but me for that matter. I'm the only God that knows you. I single-handedly, unilaterally found you in Egypt, sought you there, delivered you out of bondage, freed you from slavery to sin, and you in turn praised Baal. You in turn gave Baal the credit for the work that I have done. They got their fill and... Stopped loving God. When they were when their bellies were full, when they were safe, or at least when they were safer than they had been, they sort of realized they were safer than they had been. At least felt like they were safer than they had been. The walls of Jericho have fallen down. They forgot him. He was the only God they knew, the only God that knew them, and they forgot him. See, the substance of sin isn't just lawlessness. The substance of sin is lovelessness. The essence of of their guilt, and for that matter, of our guilt, is that we decide, I'm not just going to not do... Yes, that was two knots. Yes, it was a double negative. Run with me. I'm not just going to not do what you tell me. I'm going to choose to love me rather than you. I'm going to choose to do what I want. I'm going to choose to ignore not just your law, but your love for me. I'm not going to choose just to ignore the things you've told me to do or told me not to do. I'm going to decide that you don't love me that you don't love me enough you're not therefore worthy of my submission you're not worthy of my response you're not worthy of my obedience the substance of sin isn't just lawlessness but it's also lovelessness see the heart of the matter is this and that's pun intended for those of you that noticed Sin isn't just legal rebellion. It isn't just doing some things or not doing some things demanded of us or doing things commanded, you know, we're commanded not to do. It's not loving God as we ought. It's not loving Him as He deserves. We see the substance of sin, both lawlessness and lovelessness. Second in this chapter, I want you to see the threat of punishment. If you were going to choose an animal and say, I'm going to pick an animal that I think best represents God. Maybe a a golden or a Labrador retriever. Dedicated, committed, loyal, faithful, right? Maybe an elephant or a whale because it's just big and you sort of think God's huge and he's bigger than than anything else I know. And so I've got to choose kind of the biggest animal to represent him because he's bigger and greater than everything. 
Maybe a koala because it's cuddly and cute and not even remotely dangerous. The animal that comes to mind, right? Did you notice the animals he chose to use in this chapter in verses 7 and 8? Because God himself actually gives us a picture of himself. He uses wild beasts. Verse 7, I'm a lion. Verse 7, I'm a leopard. Um, these are predatory, big, giant, jungle, wilderness cats. Right? They kill and they eat. They chase and destroy. And in fact, the, the verb used of this leopard lurking by the path. Right? You just picture yourself comfortably, securely, safely walking down some path, knowing full well that everything's fine. I'm not even remotely in danger. And you have no idea there's a leopard lying in the tall grass just to your left. If you've spent any time in portions of the low country of South Carolina or in Florida, you understand that you don't just walk confidently and coolly around lagoons and ponds. There are alligators. They are there. You might not see them. Played golf at Fripp Island one time, lost count of how many alligators I actually saw on the golf course. This is an image of of a people walking down the road, walking down the way, there's a leopard. You know, th that sh the shoulder blades twitching, ready to pounce. You've seen it. You've pictured it. Or verse 8, a bear. Now, not a cute little cuddly baby black bear cub that you might find in the national park kind of rolling around being cute. No, no. This is the mom of that cub when that cub cannot be found. This is a bear that attacks, that defends, that sees danger and reacts and responds to it. A mother bear robbed of her cubs is angry and dangerous. And God says, that's me. That's who I am. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm prepared to be and to do to you, Israel. When you were a kid, you ever get in one of those arguments, tell me I'm not the only one. And I'm hoping that some of you kids can, can at least come up and make me feel better about me when I was a kid ages and ages ago, you ever get into these arguments when you were young and, and you and a neighbor, you and a sibling, I don't know, you just start arguing about something. You're out playing, you're having a great time, something goes wrong, you just start fussing at each other until you finally say, I'm going to beat you up. And the response back is, is that a threat or a promise? See, the question assumes that a threat is just empty words. And a promise means you're prepared to take a swing, right? And so you ask, is that a threat or a promise? Are you just saying stuff? Are you just spouting off at the mouth and nobody's really going to have to listen to you because it's just an empty threat? 
Or are you actually promising you're prepared to do something about it? Now, you and I know that the word threat doesn't mean empty, right? We, we know that. But when you're 10, you assume it. The point is, God doesn't make empty threats. Like, you can't just look back in God and go, well, is that a threat or a promise? Are you just spouting off at the mouth? Are you just saying things that you think are going to scare us when in actuality you're really not going to do anything about it after all? God doesn't make empty promises. He doesn't say things that he doesn't intend to do. He doesn't make idle threats. I suppose in this chapter he does make idle threats, just not idle threats. Did you... The, he threatens idols, but he doesn't threat, threaten idly. So if that helps, that makes sense in this chapter. Just because there's a long delay doesn't mean God's words are empty. Just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he isn't gonna. Right? Just because he's said something but hasn't actually fulfilled that promise yet or that threat as the case may be, just because he hasn't yet brought about the danger, it's been centuries that Israel has been guilty. And this threat of punishment, there's this image, this picture, this notion throughout the book of Hosea that Israel's, Israel's guilt keeps piling up Despite the threats, despite the promise of punishment, despite the fact that God says, look, this is coming. It's about to happen. And the reality is at this point, they should be able to see it like Assyria's right there. Right They're 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 on 72. They're not like, you know, in Birmingham somewhere. They're right there. And yet they still choose to ignore it. Literally, Israel looks back at God and goes, is that a threat or a promise? Are you just saying stuff? Or are you actually going to do something? See, the reality is when God finally brings judgment for sin, when He ultimately brings the punishment that sin deserves, where will you go for help? Where will you turn? Because here's the thing, they have these kings, they have these rulers, they have these kings that they had demanded, we got to have kings. And God says, verse 10 and 11, your king is no match for me. Pick your king, pick your army, choose your military, I don't care. Because... Assyria will bring your destruction. Why? Because Assyria is actually a pawn in God's hand. They're simply carrying out God's judgment. Right? And Israel, of all people, should know this. Because every good general, Patton, MacArthur, Hooker, they all come up with these great ideas. You know what we should do? We're going to take this city, but here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it by screaming and yelling and blowing trumpets. We're not going to actually like shoot artillery. 
or carry hatchets and pickaxes against the wall. We're just going to scream and yell a bunch and blow trumpets. And that'll make the walls fall down, right? I mean, you can picture MacArthur now. Okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. That's exactly what they did in Jericho. Oh, I got a better idea. Here's what we're going to do. Torches and, and trumpets. Where's, where's my sword? Well, it's in the sheath on your belt. Like, that makes perfect sense there, General Patton. Like that, exactly. Okay, got it. Yes, torches and we'll, we'll make noise and we'll break the pot and the torch. But there's only a few hundred of us. And there's an entire city. It's fine. We got this. Like Israel understood this. They have been exactly to other nations what Assyria is about to be to them. Merely a tool that God holds in his hand to carry out his purposes. And for them, that means the danger, the threat of punishment. See, the reality is we're all guilty. We're all legally and lovely. That's not a word. We all break God's law legally, but we're also just as guilty of not loving Him. Of not loving and serving and delighting in His law, delighting in His care for us. And so the threat of coming punishment is just as real for us as it is, as it was for Israel in Hosea's day. No earthly ruler, no latest, greatest earthly idea, no army, no military, no worldview, nothing can save you from that judgment. No earthly power can deliver you from that judgment. That's the world we live in. That's, that's the world we face. We see the substance of sin, the threat of punishment, and finally the hope of deliverance. There is no earthly deliverer. That doesn't mean, however, there's no deliverer. Because did you notice verse 14? I intentionally made a change. Your ESV, most likely, I assume all of the ESVs are the same way, asks in, verses four, in verse 14, shall I? I think in Hebrew it's actually a statement, not a question. I literally stacked up, I was telling Nancy this morning, I literally stacked up commentaries on my desk. These are the ones that call it a question. These are the ones that say it's a statement. It's just not, it's written as a, as a statement. The NIV, the, New, the King James, have it as a, a, a statement. He's saying, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them. You think to yourself, well, hold on. That sounds like, contradictory to everything he said so far. That's been Hosea's pattern. We've seen in almost every chapter, at least one statement in almost every chapter of Hosea that doesn't fit the context. It's literally like talking to someone. Well, it's like talking to me sometimes. You're going down a road, a thought runs in your head and you say it. And it has nothing to do with the road you're on. Or it seems contradictory only to come back again. That's been Hosea's pattern. He introduces these ideas. Wait, wait, wait hold on. That sounded hopeful. Come, can we go back to that? 
Well, that's exactly what he's doing here. In fact, you notice he does it at the end of verse 14. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. He gives you the glimmer of hope and then reminds them because the whole rest of the chapter is the sure and certain defeat and destruction of Assyria. But in verse 14, there's hope. It's not earthly hope. It's heavenly hope. It's rooted in God's grace. It's rooted in the the promises of God that he will have for himself a people. And the thing is, you cannot earn it. We cannot be good enough. We cannot gain God's favor by just trying harder, by doing more, by, by doing better than we have. It's rooted in a promise that God will bring healing, that God himself will offer the way out in the face of coming judgment. Is Israel guilty? Absolutely. But their hope of deliverance is the same as ours. Sinners redeemed, notice that word. Shall I shall ransom them. I shall redeem them. That requires paying a debt. That requires making a payment so that the one paid for can be set free. The reality is God has promised punishment for sin. He's also promised to save for himself a people. And both of those are true. Our hope of deliverance is in God's grace through Christ. It's in his grace and his mercy. It's true that sin will be punished. The question is, who will be punished for your sin? Will it be you or will it be Jesus? Will you suffer the wrath and curse of God because of your sin, because of your cosmic treason? Or is Jesus going to suffer that for you? Because here's the thing, even in the face of death, which is that that last enemy, that last sort of, the last sort of great thing that sin can throw at us, the last consequence of our cosmic treason is death itself. And even death cannot be, cannot outpower, cannot outmuscle Christ. Christ has defeated it, and therefore we can actually look death in the eye and say, Where's your sting? What can you do? How much can you hurt me? Exactly what can you do to me? Okay, you may lay me in the grave for a time. But I happen to know that when Christ returns, he'll take me out and put me back together again. And take me to live with him in the new creation forever. If you're trusting in Christ, that is your hope. That is your expectation those however who are not trusting in christ will make the punishment themselves you and i are guilty of not serving god correctly or lovingly and the threat of punishment is real but our hope of deliverance is the grace of god in christ and not in our own works are you trusting in him for your salvation is he your hope of 
deliverance? Or are you still hoping that God will speak mere empty threats? Are you still looking God in the face and saying, is that a threat or a promise? Look to the cross of Christ and find there that punishment has no more threat, is no more threat to you. In fact, we just sang that a second ago, right? The line I quoted maybe in Sunday school a few weeks back. Um, Let us wonder grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Justice has been satisfied in the cross of Christ. That is your hope. And may God grant to us a growing love for his word and his desire to follow and serve him. Let's pray together. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hope of deliverance, this sure and certain promise that we live out of our forgiveness, that we live out of our redemption in Christ, that our salvation is all of your grace and not by our works, not by our own merit. Would you... Would you use that truth, that promise that justice is satisfied to grow in us a greater love for you, a greater desire to serve you, greater love for your word. Plant us firmly in it and on it that we might bear fruit to the honor and glory of Christ. For we ask all of this for his sake. And in his name, amen.